In today's podcast, I want to discuss corporate strategy. One of the things that we've done at Firms Consulting is we take for granted that candidates and even consultants understand the differences between strategy, operations, and implementation. And while most of the time candidates do understand the difference, I wouldn't say perfectly, we find that the area of strategy is generally lumped together and candidates use the word as a catch-all for a variety of projects which are actually quite different. And today's podcast is going to be focusing on the term strategy and breaking that down into corporate strategy and the other areas of strategy. And the advice or the information in this podcast, I think, would be very, very interesting to aspiring consultants, but also to practicing consultants. Because I find that consultants who are at Bain, McKinsey, BCG, and so on, the younger ones especially, no fault of their own, they're still learning the process, they haven't legitimized the differences between the types of strategy work. So I'm going to use some examples here of actual projects to talk through the differences. But let's possibly begin by talking through the differences between strategy, operations, and implementation. Again, very briefly to set the context for the broader discussion on corporate strategy. Implementation is where you work with a client to bank the benefits identified in the operations or strategy project. Right? It's a very different kind of skill set, very different kind of projects. The payment structures are different. The rates are very different. It's fun if you like doing it, but I think it can be really painful if you don't like this kind of work. It's more, I would say, a 9-to-5 kind of role because you're working with a client and you can't move ahead too far of the client because you leave them behind and you know things just fall apart. So if you're forced to work with the client, you have to work at the client's pace. And I would say there are very few clients I've worked with, for example, that like arriving at 6 o'clock in the morning and leaving at 10 p.m. at night just because consultants are there. So implementation projects, I would say, are done well by very few firms. And uh, it's no insult to the firms. I think you know firms are good at certain things and are not so good at other things. Despite what people talk about Deloitte's operations practice and implementation ability, I don't think those firms or even McKinsey are good at implementation. The firms that I've seen that are outstanding at implementation, uh, I've seen IBM do outstanding implementation projects. I've seen Ernest & Young do a fantastic turnaround project recently. Um, I've even seen A.T. Kearney do some interesting projects. Capgemini in Europe does amazing um, uh, implementation projects. Those are the firms that are good at implementation. And they do it well, and I think that you you have to give them credit for that. Operations is different. Operations and strategy are by and say, by, by, by any measure, the same in the sense that you have to go into a situation, develop hypotheses, and do a whole lot of analysis to identify the problem. But in a strategy and operations project, you are still identifying the problem. I find a lot of firms trying to differentiate themselves from the strategy houses by saying they can do operations. And I find that a bit funny because if you can't do strategy work, you pretty much can't do operations work because the analytical skills required to do proper operations is similar to the analytical skills required to do proper strategy work. And I think firms that are good at strategy tend to be good at operations. And we can see that the good operations firms are... um, McKinsey is great at operations. Bain is fantastic at operations. Getting, you know, some of the biggest revenue sources come from operations. BCG is also very good at operations. But because operations is such a broad area and has so many definitions, a lot of firms 
lumping areas into operations that are not real operations. I've seen firms who will be managing a project management office. A project management office is not operations. That's on the border between implementation and something else that a firm does. But it's not operations because in a project management office, you've already received the results, if it's well designed, from the operations team or strategy team telling you what to do and then you've got to manage the implementation. But a lot of firms like Accenture to some extent, but I think Deloitte does more of this. They lump in PMO work post-merger integration and they call it operations and it's not operations it's slightly different i've seen bain does this and even bcg does this it's a way for them to move into implementation work and that's where most of these firms are trying to get to i don't think they'll do it but they are trying to get there but let's now step back and talk about strategy versus corporate strategy because i think there's a complete misunderstanding between these two or this this area. So we've in strategy, you get different kinds of strategy. You get corporate strategy, which sits at the top, not because it's better than the others, but sits at the top because you're setting direction for a company. Below corporate unit, below corporate strategy, you get business unit strategy, or regional strategies, if you want to call it that. And below business unit strategy, you get strategies for marketing, for pricing, for procurement, for whatever it is. Right now. I will take a bet with you that there are not many people in consulting firms today who can explain the difference between corporate strategy and the other types of strategy. If you have friends at McKinsey, Bain and BCG or whatever, Rollenberg and so on, the elite strategy firms, go out and ask them this question. There's only one difference and I'll explain that to you here. In a marketing project, for example, let's assume you're developing a marketing strategy for Unilever, for Dove. That marketing strategy's objective could be to increase market share, right? If you're developing a marketing strategy for, let's say, Unilever's main competitor, P&G, uh, let's say it's, um, I don't know, Tampax, for example, um, the, the, the marketing strategy's objective for Tampax could be to increase profits. So what you see is that you've got two different marketing strategy cases with different objective functions, Right? And that's what that's one of the major differences between strategy and corporate strategy. In corporate stra- in, in in other strategy, you already know what the corporation wants you to achieve, or you have a pretty good indication even if you don't, you know, have it nailed down and you're trying to match or get the brand or the, the company towards this objective function. It's a very important distinction here. You know, even if you're doing a project for the um, division of a media company, at the corporate level, the the company has determined what its strategy is going to be. And the team working on the business unit strategy for, let's say, the online part of the business, their job is to figure out, hey, you know what? What do we need this online business to be to help the company achieve its overall corporate strategy, right? So when you're doing strategy, that's not corporate strategy. You have some kind of guide in front that you're working towards, which is the direction set by the corporation. And generally speaking, your objective function will change depending on what that guide is at the front, right? Corporate strategy is different. When you walk into a company and they want to know what they need to do, there's only one objective function for corporate strategy, and that is to maximize shareholder value, right? once adjusted for risk. Always remember that. Shareholder value is always a function of risk. 
You have to think about that for a second. In any corporate strategy project in the world, if the board of, I don't know, let's call it, let's think of a company in trouble today. If the board of um, Research in Motion, the large Canadian wireless company, oh, handset manufacturer, sorry, needs help, they would call in a strategy team and say, okay, what do we do? Right? But when they say, what do we do? The background is always, what do we do to protect shareholder value? Right? Because that's who the board answers to and that's ultimately who the consulting firm is actually indirectly us answering to right so when you're doing corporate strategy it's always about maximizing shareholder value sure there could be the company that is facing a lawsuit now or is trying to sell a division but it's a, if it if it is at the corporate strategy level it's always a question should we shall sell this division to maximize shareholder value so when you think about corporate strategy projects and other strategy projects other strategy projects are usually guided by the corporate direction and the objective function is not fixed. In corporate strategy, the objective function is always fixed. You're always maximizing shareholder value. So I'm going to give you two examples about this, two very interesting examples. For those of you who work at Bain, you probably know a partner called Alan Bird, a nice guy, INSEAD graduate, um, worked his way through some boutique firms. And I think he may run, the last time anyway I spoke to him, I know he was going to be put forward to run Bain's um, implementation practice, whatever they call that. The interesting thing about Alan Bird is that I think he's probably one of the few, if not the only, practice leaders not published in the Harvard Business Review at Bain. That's not to say he's not an intelligent guy. He's a pretty smart guy, uh, and he knows what he's doing. And you know, if you want to think about how corporate strategy works, I think a project that Alan initiated, he wasn't the only partner involved, but he was definitely the, the sort of the nucleus of the thinking behind this. Uh, um, this project can show you how corporate strategy works because it's it's a very good example of how of how uncertain corporate strategy projects are. And this is the third, and, and before I go into this example, I want to talk to you about the one, th the, the third sort of major difference about corporate strategy projects. When, when you walk in as a partner to help a client on his corporate strategy, you don't know what the answer is going to be. It's not as if, you know, you're helping a company reduce its procurement costs. And there you know, at the end of the project, the costs are going to be, if it is a billion dollars they're spending on procurement, it's going to be something like $900 million, $950 million, whatever it is. In a corporate strategy project, you don't know what the final answer is going to be. There's no safe answer. It could be anything, or it could be nothing. And let me give you, let me talk you through Alan's project to give you an example of this. There's a company, if you're a lady, you've been brainwashed by this company, and a guy, I suppose. You know, in the 1940s, 1930s, many people don't know this. But not a lot of people were thrilled with diamonds. Diamonds are not something that's been with us for a long time as a sign of affection and you know, the f showing your love for someone. Diamonds is a product of a marketing campaign started by a bunch of guys in the diamond industry for a working at a company called De Beers. They started a brilliant marketing campaign in the 50s, I think it was, which showed diamonds being used for these kind of occasions. There was a time when women preferred, uh, I think it was pearls for um, wedding and gate for for um, um, wedding proposals and so on. But De Beers started, which is what is arguably the world's most successful marketing campaign, to get people to believe that when you propose and for special occasions for ladies, you give them diamonds, which is kind of ironic because diamonds are a commodity, right? So what did De Beers do beyond creating this marketing campaign that? pulled in the supply for diamonds which created demand for it they also said that well 
if you want to raise the price for a commodity, you increase demand and you reduce supply. So what they did is they they created what is known as a cartel, and they constricted the supply of demand into the of supply of demands into the market. So the, the supply of diamonds into the market, and the way they did it is they had something called site holders, whereby De Beers would buy up as much diamonds as it could, and then they would determine how much of those diamonds would go onto the sort of, for lack of a better word, into the market, and then they would decide who could participate in that market. A brilliant strategy, except for two things. Cartels are illegal, and the U.S. government indicted the board of De Beers, which means that if a De Beers um, director ever set foot in the United States, they would be arrested and tried for running a cartel. Now, I don't know if, you, if I'm you, but you know, if I'm a successful diamond broker earning millions of dollars um, selling diamonds, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a family and have kids, and it's pretty difficult to take your children to Disney World when you can't go to the United States. Maybe you can take them to Euro Disney or the one in Japan, but I'm guessing it's not the same thing. So I'm not saying this was the reason why they broke up the cartel, but you know, it could be, who knows, right? Families are influential in the lives of a businessman. So anyway, the fall of the Soviet Union did two things. Firstly, the Soviet Union was a source of diamonds. And secondly, the Soviets also had technology to manufacture synthetic diamonds. Both entered the market. Beyond that, also a lot of Russian traders moved into Angola and other parts of the world, and they refused to take part in the, well, refused, weren't allowed, who knows, but, you know, guys like Lev Levayev and so on broke up De Beers' stranglehold on the market. And you had a situation where De Beers couldn't control supply, so prices started falling. So, at around this time, um, De Beers decided they needed external help. And they approached many consulting firms. And the way I've been told the story from the Bain uh, leadership team anyway, is that Alan Bird pitched the idea that was probably, if you saw it at the time, one of the most ludicrous ideas you could have ever have heard. Basically, what he said is that, look, you know, if you look at the economics of the industry, you you cannot really have the same business model. The business model is broken. There's no way you're going to control supply because it's too difficult to control supply. You're sucking up a lot of resources, time, money, efforts. You're basically a very unproductive business. Your return on invested capital is really low because of the amount of time to protect supply. And in fact, you're protecting something that cannot be protected and you cannot control it. So if you cannot control supply, can you manipulate diamond? Can you manipulate demand? So the business model that Bain worked through for De Beers is to say that we're going to change our business model and rather than focusing on the supply side and demand side, we're going to focus exclusively on the demand side by moving De Beers towards a retail model whereby they would have stores like a Tiffany all over the world and sell branded diamonds to the world. So the bottom line is that De Beers is not going to m keep the prices of diamonds high by manipulating the supply-demand relationship, but by manipulating the demand factor, pulling in more demand. Now, in hindsight, it's very easy to say this was obvious, but you have to remember the time when this happened. No one had ever seen a different model for diamonds. No one could understand what was going to happen. You're telling a company that is basically a mining company and a sales office that they need to go into retail, which they've never understood before and never tried to do before. That is proper corporate strategy. 
The only objective function there is how do we maximize shareholder value in the light of massive disruptions in the supply side of the business and huge competition in the demand side of the business because you've got a Tiffany store that for lack of, you know, for all intensive purposes is probably more renowned and more closely related to diamond retailing than De Beers is, right? But that's a perfect example of corporate strategy. When you walk into a client as Alan Bird, you don't have some faint inkling of what the answer is going to be. You have no inkling. This is not like a marketing strategy project where you know that at the end of the day you're going to be selling Twinkies or whatever, Pringles or whatever it is to you know teenagers in Indonesia and so on, maybe just manipulating the price and channels. No. At a corporate strategy project, it's quite scary to be in a corporate strategy team because you're walking in and completely changing the trajectory of a company. And if you set a new direction, you've got to reorganize a company, bring in new competencies. It's, it's, a, it's a complete makeover, right? And that's what it is. And I think that when people th- talk about strategy, I want you to distinguish between corporate strategy and other strategy. Corporate strategy, people are always held in high regard. And I'll say this out loud because you it takes a certain amount of skills and analytical firepower to develop recommendations that are so creative that they, that they protect shareholder value, take the company in a new direction, and make them competitive. A lot of companies fall into the trap, and I've seen this all the time, of making corporate strategy hairy-fairy. They'll say things, but they cannot support it with the analysis. That's not corporate strategy. That's fiction. And the bottom line is that corporate strategy consultants are deeply analytical. If you are saying something so controversial that totally upends a company, you just have no choice but to completely go into the numbers and be able to support what you are saying. Time will tell if the De Beers strategy will work, but I think that you know it is the right thing to do for De Beers. And I think if it doesn't work, it's a question of whether it was executed well or wasn't executed well. And I don't think Bain should be blamed for that. So that was a very, very interesting project around corporate strategy. But let's talk about another project, right? So this is a project I worked on. It's a project we did for a bank in Central Asia. A state-owned bank, a a behemoth, you know, a company that is a monster, multi-billion dollar balance sheet, tens of billions of dollars balance sheet. And basically they provide um, mortgage services, retail banking services, and so on to a whole lot of regional and domestic companies and it was a good model to be in because if you think about it um, you know you have a captive market you're a state-owned business you know when the Soviet Union collapsed people are not going to go work with some private business because they know that they don't know what's going to happen that's all they know so why don't we work with someone we know and we know the government we know a state-owned bank has got branches everywhere so let's work with them and that model worked very well and after a while the bank started losing money and this is a bank that if it went down under, it would take down the government with it and probably the whole region. So it's a project I worked on, led a team of about eight people to go in and figure out what was happening at this bank and give it a whole new direction. And again, there is no mandate to say cut costs and so No. When the minister brings you in and tells the team, what do we do? It's all completely open-ended. What do we do? How do we make sure that this money you know, this this business that used to spit out money that paid for all the other extravagances doesn't die and take us, you know, into a black hole. So we arrive there and we do the analysis. And it's a very interesting business model, you know. Basically, the way this 
business used to work is that they were able to raise money on the capital markets or local markets using the implicit guarantee of the government as backing to raise capital at a lower interest rate than commercial banks. So if commercial banks were able to borrow at, let's say, 500 basis points, this company was able to borrow at 300 basis points. So it's got a 200 basis point difference, right? Which is basically it's spread. So what that means is that if it's borrowing cheaper than other banks, right, it could lend the money out into the market at a slightly lower um, interest rate than the commercial banks, but make a higher return. And that's basically what they did, right? They basically would take money from the government and lend it out, and you know, suck and basically just um, you know skim off the, the the cream at the top. And they would use that to fund a whole lot of ventures from building football stadiums to railway lines and so on. A model that worked, and everyone was making a lot of money. I'm not saying it was efficient; it was a remarkably inefficient business, but they made money. And because the business was doing so well, you know, over time they, they attached an insurance arm, they t attached all kinds of financial services into this until you had this financial services supermarket like Citigroup that did everything but nothing really well. And I suppose it's exactly like Citigroup, right? So you're in a situation whereby you've created this monster and it's so big and it's so convoluted and the different balance sheets don't really reconcile that when you have to figure out what is not working, there's no starting point. So I would say a large part of the team's work in the first few weeks was just to create that single balance sheet so we can get a view of what was happening. Um, and you know, when people talk about um, you know, analytical skills and so on, this is where it comes in. You're basically building a balance sheet from scratch. And I remember those MBAs from INSEAD and whichever schools were there. I remember a couple from INSEAD. You know, none of them have accounting backgrounds and so on beyond what they learned in the MBA program, but that's what they're working on, right? Building it together. They did a very good job, obviously. But what we realized very quickly is that the government, which was bankrolling a lot of adventures when they first became independent, as they started seeing more and more problems in the country, they realized that, you know what, not only do we have to fix this bank, we've got to save this airline. Not only do we have to save our national airline, we've got to save our national transportation company. We have to save our national courier company. We have to save our defense company. So the, the government has been called on to support more and more state-owned enterprises. And obviously, a government doesn't have unlimited a balance sheet. Technically, governments don't have a balance sheet, but let's assume they did. Go technically, a government doesn't have an unlimited balance sheet. So, over time, the government went to this bank and said, you know what? We're not going to give you money anymore at those interest rates. In fact, we're not going to give you money anymore. You have to raise money on the capital markets. And there you were in a situation whereby, because the bank had previously never worried who it had lent to because it was backed by the government, it lent to pretty dodgy characters, and I would say dodgy, not criminals, but people who had poor credit histories. So you've got a loan book that's pretty low quality, and you're now using that loan book as your collateral base against which to borrow money on the capital markets. And you know what the capital markets do, does, they're very, they're very efficient. You've got a bad loan book, they're going to punish you with excessive interest rates, right? So the bank was now in a position whereby it's got to lend money to the domestic recipients at good rates, but because obviously the domestic market is poor and as a state-owned bank, you've got to help local people by offering them something better. But here's the problem. The bank was borrowing money 
from the capital international capital markets using a poor loan book and obviously a poor loan book led to high interest rates so the question is it's collecting money at a high interest rate it now has to lend at a low interest rate so the the, the competitive advantage is totally shifted and the way we presented this to the bank is to say that you have two options in life here you can either take on the same amount of risk as commercial banks by offering funding to customers at reduced interest rates that's your first choice or you can absorb more risk than commercial banks for the same price that a commercial institution might offer for a comparable product and service. Now, obviously, the first option is out. They can take on the same amount of risk by offering funding to customers at a reduced interest rate because they're borrowing from the capital markets at a high interest rate. So, the problem then, be the, the, the only path they could follow is to offer a package to a customer for the same price as a commercial bank but here's the key thing let's assume a commercial bank was going to offer a loan for let's say a, a loan for is going to issue a loan of a thousand dollars with a three percent interest rate the development bank here would do the same thing but the risk profile of the customer was going to be higher right it's the only way that they could succeed by taking on more risk. And this completely upended their business model because what we have to then do is understand what kind of risk the bank could understand. And then once they understood it, what kind of risk they could manage and what kind of risk they wanted to manage. So what we ended up doing here is completely putting this state-owned bank and a diet. Eventually they had to shelve off the insurance side of the business, the mortgage side of the business, until they became this really pared down, slimmed down woman after a total makeover, right? But the moral of the story here is that when we arrived at the bank, we had zero clue that this is what we we're going to do. I mean, it's not as if we started here by saying, okay, best practice says that when you do a corporate strategy for a state-owned bank, these are the options. No, you have no idea what the options are going to be. And that's the difference between corporate strategy and other types of strategy. It's a bit scary because you don't know where this could go. There's no clues. All we know is we have to protect the shareholder, which is the government. And we have to maximize value for the government. And maximizing value is not the same as making a business larger. In many cases, you make a business smaller and maximize value. But in this particular case, it's also you know scary in the sense that anything you do is going to be reported to the ministerial delegation, which then has to be reported to the press and the press by default doesn't like anything the government does right and one of the really funny things about doing uh, corporate strategy work for state-owned companies is that in a, in a typical corporate strategy project we would present a preliminary analysis to the ceo or the board in a private sector company you present your preliminary analysis but you knew full well that as you did more digging behind the scenes your preliminary analysis may change but you don't mind the client understands it and you understand that but it's different for a state-owned company you present your preliminary analysis and it has to go into the public records because all ministerial discussions are in the public records. Those are then picked up by the press which says that the government said they would do this. But the government's not saying anything. It's just a preliminary analysis. Six weeks later or eight weeks later when we come back with our new numbers and we change things, you can imagine what happens in the press. The press says, well, the government got the numbers wrong. How can we trust them? So corporate strategy, I think, is very complex for any company because the objective function is fixed and you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. But for doing it for state-owned companies is even more scary because not only is the uh, 
objective function fixed and you don't know what the outcome is going to be, you're forced to, or the government anyway, because consultants are never going to engage the media, the government is forced to constantly explain the way a strategy project works to the media, which is never going to get it. I mean, you can think about, for those listening to this podcast, how many of you actually knew the difference between corporate strategy and general strategy? Not many. So imagine trying to explain this to the press, which is going to howl and scream and say, no, you don't know what you're doing. And whenever I read newspaper articles about how governments change their minds, I always think to myself, but you don't know how that strategy project was constructed. And you don't know how the information at different stages of the project was released. So just to step back, corporate strategy is very different from other forms of strategy. It's the elite side of management consulting because you have descending I think probably the most well-trained consultants to work at the highest level, usually to point to the board or at least the CEO, to determine where this company should go and all the options on the table, right? You know, another example is that, you know, remember when Nokia was making tires and fishing rods, they then decided to go into mobile devices. Now, it's easy to say in hindsight this is the right thing to do, but imagine that team of advisors, assuming they had one, telling a team of executives who made fishing rods and ties that they need to go into mobile devices. They may be fired for that, right? Best practice wouldn't show that. Conventional wisdom wouldn't show that. And that's the thing about corporate strategy. Conventional wisdom doesn't apply. There is no such thing as conventional wisdom for corporate strategy. There is no such thing as best practice because if you follow best practice, you tend towards the mean. And obviously, best practice for one company is certainly not best practice for company X or Y because you don't know what their corporate strategy is yet. So when you're thinking about the kind of work you want to do, don't just fall into the trap of saying you want to do strategy. I know plenty of people who end up doing pricing strategy and marketing strategies and procurement strategies and supply chain strategies, uh, whatever it is, right? And they never do corporate strategy. And there is an elitism amongst consultants who do corporate strategy. They're the best of the best. They are the, you know, the alpha dogs, right? It's one thing to help the the GM president of Europe. It's quite another thing to help the president of General Motors determine where this company is going. Um, so when you're thinking about your future planning for careers, don't just say you want to be a strategy consultant because you could end up being someone figuring out how to price dog food in northeastern United States. Or, you know, you can be someone helping Procter & Gamble decide how they're going to go head-to-head against Unilever in Africa completely different levels of prestige, completely different levels of analysis, and I think completely different levels of the kind of impact you can make. As always, I'll wrap up by offering the chance to answer any questions, and if anyone has any comments, I'd be happy to hear about it. Thank you.